This is Writers Radio, and I'm Ingrid Rose, your host today for our program, The Mercy Journals, by Claudia Casper. I talk with novelist Claudia Casper about her experience of writing her novel, The Mercy Journals, published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2016. Set in a post-apocalyptic world, the story she wrote is in a new genre, cli-fi, climate fiction. An inquiry into human nature, morality, murder, and forgiveness. Tell me about the title. It's such an amazing metaphor. This book was originally called The Last Murder because one of the early conceits or one of the early driving forces of the book was conceiving of a future where there was no murder. So uh, flipping the story of uh, Cain and Abel on its head and coming from the first murder to the last murder. But human nature being what it is, I, I couldn't. I couldn't write that book realistically. So, um, and also the publisher felt it made it sound as if it was a thriller or a detective story. So then the hunt was on for another title. And so journals came and because his nickname was Mercy in the book, that's where it came from, the Mercy journals. But it does, it is a good title. It works on several layers. But he had that nickname. It was already a metaphor, right? So let's for right for listeners who haven't read the book yet, and even though it's you know 2016, I think was the publishing date. I was curious, but I'd like you first maybe to just tell us about Alan. His middle name's Levy, isn't it? Quincy. Yes. One of the early inspirations for this character who is dealing with a post-climate change world in the year 2047. I envision it as partly a, a world in which heat and electricity are very much at a premium. So everything, all the technology has been dialed back. There's some new new technology that uses very little power, but um, life is simpler. He's now working as a parking attendant because he has a very severe case of PTSD. So how he has dealt with it is by making his life so small that nothing unexpected can enter. So it's a very controlled and small existence. is a thriller, not in the classical sense, but from the minute that you open it, it's so engaging. And what I also, because I went back and reread the beginning, because that, that stayed with me, and I realized what it was. It is so visceral. You have this man who's been injured. He has a wooden leg. And so I thought of the sound of a wooden leg, just when you say peg leg or something, you already hear it. And then, of course, this woman who upsets his life, Ruby, comes clacking along 
on her high heels. I see this as a movie. Yes, I would love it. Well, or either that or a four-part series would be wonderful. I wrote the book as a journal entry because I wanted the reader to feel like Alan Quincy's voice was right beside their ear. So I, I um, that took a lot of time actually to get that the way I wanted it. I also wanted the book to be very pared down and minimal. So there should be nothing extra in it. Writing the book with that voice proved to be very challenging, though, because if a character is writing a journal, and in this case, he's writing the journal to himself as a way to approach memories that he thinks will destroy them. The journals are the run-up to his confrontation with his past, which he hopes may release him to have a future. But you can't, then the character can't tell the reader anything directly because the, he's speaking to himself. So I had to find ways of getting information to the reader um, sort of subtly through him speaking to himself. <laughs> Very challenging. And also just that conceit of writing. Yes, so it's that whole Socratic notion about writing is the death of memory. I was so entranced with that. I read that in Plato's Phaedrus. And that was at a time when the internet, when I first was sort of reading this and researching it, the internet and computers were really, in a way, just coming on. I mean, they were here, but there were many articles about what, getting our information on screens and often in small bits, what that was doing to our brain. And, you know, many doom and gloom, like this is the end of thinking and, and uh, so forth. And then when I read Plato's book, he was saying the same thing, uh, you know, thousands of years ago about the invention of writing. Yes. Uh, so paper and pen, that it was becoming more accessible to the common people. And from Plato's point of view, this meant that memory would die. Well, that's it. I mean, Socrates walked and talked. That's how he taught his students. It, right. Committed to writing. It was Plato, in fact. <laughs> if he hadn't written it down, we wouldn't have had record. We wouldn't have had it. And of course, we know it didn't destroy memory. It changed memory. And perhaps it freed RAM, our brains around to do other and more creative things. Whether this is the case with the internet, I don't know. But at that time, also, I was thinking of how this new te technology was going to change novels and going to change books. I mean, there was also a, a theory that, you know, books would be dead and they would all be online and with screens. And that has not proven to be true. In fact, this is a very intimate book. You talked about you wanted his voice to be in the reader's ear. Well, you achieved that so well. And I think the question I had is, how did you get into the head 
of a male protagonist. I mean, not just the, a particular male, but even it, it was so authentic to me. This wasn't a woman talking. This was a guy. I feel very satisfied with what happened there. I started early, 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 you know, a decade or two before writing this book. I became deeply interested in the story of General Romeo Dallaire, who was the the head of the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda during the time of the genocide there. He was, in some ways, one of the first soldiers to come back and talk about PTSD. For him, he was he, his orders were to do nothing, and in fact, even to leave. And I think his personal moral compass wouldn't let him leave. He wanted to stay to do what little he could which means that I think this was why his PTSD was so particularly horrific, was that the things he witnessed and heard, he, he could not act on. And so he started talking about how that actually changed the hardwiring in his brain. I went and met him in Ottawa, and I read his two of his books, and then I read a bunch of books about soldiers, and also I had this manuscript read by a soldier um, to make sure that I had it right, and read by several men, and you know there were some interesting things there, there, and you know these are generalizations, so it's not obviously always true. But I noticed that I tended to hedge things a little in my writing. So I would say a little or somewhat or maybe or perhaps. And often, certainly a, a, a man of action would not talk that way. It's a declarative statement. They just say it. So in a way, that was so much fun and such a good discipline to learn how to do that and just say that. I later did a TED TEDx talk. Um, and I was told the same thing there. You have to make a declarative sentence. You can't speak as if you're making sure what you say is true, which is kind of my default. Is like I, I would put in every case where it wasn't true. That was also enormously freeing to just say things. And even if they're not true in every case, it's fine. You know, you're saying what you're saying is still true. So that was a bit of a discovery for me. And yeah, I had the thought of writing the character as a woman, but then um, in this case, gender, it, then it would have been about her gender in some way. And I really didn't want the book to be about that. I wanted it to be really about killing and about murder and where that, where that behavior fits in our species. And also this is where it connects for me with climate change is what future do we have given the behavior that is so deeply evolutionarily wired in us. Um, and so when I watch in, in, in climate change playing out and people responding to it, and, you know, whatever primitive understanding I have of how it's not individual behavior that will have to change, it's a way of dealing with each other as nations, as groups, internationally, that behavior 
you have to evolve a new behavior because we didn't evolve for the that kind of a big group action yes and so questions of trust and verifiable verifiability and enforcement these are all going to be profound questions yes and that you don't shy away from profound questions but what i particularly what i thought was very skillful was the reader is aware of all these big issues and yet it's so personal and so intimate about real life people and their relationships mm-hmm. you know i think that's certainly what i look for in a novel is i want to be engaged with the people i um i'm very drawn to seeking out an emotional honesty for example i just read lucy by the sea by elizabeth strout she was talking about how at the age of 62 or 3 she has finally discovered the sense her, her sense how her senses work but what blew me away about her work is the declension of emotion that she gets to she gets to such a fine and nuanced truth about emotions and it's invigorating it's startling as a writer i'm i'm interested in politics i'm interested in global politics but my way of wanting to understand them is to get to the emotional truth of it because i think of us as a species that is driven by emotion much more than thought yes absolutely and i think you i grew up thinking that you had to change the system and then of course i believe that to be still the case but what about the people if the people aren't coming to terms with themselves and don't know what is driving them we get the situation that we're in now so please will you read from the mercy journals okay i'd be happy to i've uh, chosen the selection i read at norwestcon which is a science fiction conference in seattle where there's cosplay so people were dressed up as thor and as things from you know harry potter there was steampunk everywhere it was pretty racy some of the outfits i have to say and um my book was nominated for the philip k dick award and, and i won it right it won it which was a thrill let me tell you <laughs> Really belated congratulations. Thank you so much. But I mean at the table at our table that one of the guests stood up and he had like a tail on his suit. So this was the delight of the setting. I picked uh, one of the weirder passages. I don't think I need to explain them, but um uh, my character Alan Quincy is suicidal thoughts are present. So he's um he's being enticed and he's resisting this is the uh, entry for march 11th 
Last week, I went out and got a Mickey of whiskey from the bootleg. This week, a bottle in the night is barely touching it. So I went down to the corner. It was still the corner. I'm not fussy, I told the guy. Just get me out of my mind. He hunched deep in his coat, causing his demi-gray ponytail to fan out at the collar. He sucked mucus in and spat, a gesture communicating both his contempt and camaraderie for his customers. Whole ecosystems have vanished, and yet... Ambien, OC, I suggested, triple C, anything. Walking away with four pills in my pocket, I passed a scattering of young women and men trying to get shelter in a loading bay from a wind that peppered us all hard with squally rain. They looked like they were waiting for a delivery. I felt sorry for them and hoped it wasn't long in coming. I don't know what he sold me, something new, mimosa. You'll feel mellow as butter in ten minutes, he said, with no weirdness. I dropped by the bootleg and bought a couple of bottles, just in case. Took a slug, wrapped my sweater around one of the bottles so they wouldn't clank in my pack, and I headed for home. I started to feel the relief of knowing I had something that would bring relief. A few blocks from my apartment, I got dizzy, which happens periodically since my condition started. I managed to make it to a small park and lean against one of the scrawny trees the city planted to replace the ones that keeled over in the last windstorm. I lay my cheek against its cool, wet bark and closed my eyes. I don't know how long it took for my head to clear. Ten minutes? Two hours? But eventually, I opened my eyes again. I was staring at the sparse grass at my feet. The earth between some of the blades began to move as pea-sized balls of dirt were pushed up from below. Then I glimpsed what was pushing the dirt. Worms, purpley pink, the color of cold lips. They finished clearing out the entrances to their holes and popped out, eight of them, sticking up like baby fingers. They were a real demographic mix, from young to old, hermaphroditic to gendered, light pink to medium purple. They waved their stick arms in cheery exuberance and were almost endearing, if you can say that about worms. They smiled at me like they knew me, then glanced at each other in nervous excitement, and one of them counted off. A one and a two and a one, two, three. They broke into song, harmonizing like a barbershop quartet with fake British accents. Alan Quincy, Alan Quincy, don't be chintzy. Drop your martyr, join the potter. My mind started to thrash about inside my skull, trying to find any excuse not to accept. It was a nice invitation, and I didn't want to be rude. I'm working very early in the morning, I said apologetically. I need my sleep. The worms dropped their heads, crushed with disappointment, and nodded. I was scared. I'd met those worms before, but not for a long time, not for 20 years, not since I'd been sober. I thought they'd be back. They're persistent little buggers. I wasn't sure I could hold them off this time. I raced home, 
too alarmed now to try a pill. I flushed all four down the toilet, got my 9mm out of the closet, loaded it, put the safety on, and careened around my apartment, chilled with sweat, weeping, moaning, pressing against the walls. I sank to the floor on the cracked linoleum of the kitchenette. The cracked linoleum trials of Alan Quincy had cracked. My heart can live with what's in my mind. The heart is a cold and calculating organ, but my mind can't stand it. I hope that the listeners who haven't maybe read you will be really enticed by your very careful use of language. Thank you. I do. I am one of those obsessive. I check every word for the truth in it. Yes. And one other thing I wanted to ask you, when did you start this book? So it came out in 2016, but how long was it in the making? Oh, it. In some, I mean, it's funny. In some ways, one feels embarrassed to say how long, but in another way, one could be proud to say how long. So it would have been in 2008. So I guess it took nine years. It takes time to write such complex novels. It seems like it, you know, um, and it's not like I'm not working on it like five days a week, six days a week. I mean, sometimes life interrupts, but, you know, I'm pretty steady at it. I can't say concentration's improved over the years. And I would say the internet has has de- definitely had a detrimental effect there. But um, the book I'm working on now which is funny and... I thought of as a lighter and was thinking, oh, I can write this quickly. Uh, It's still going to take me probably five years. You've been listening to Writers Radio and the novelist Claudia Casper talking with me, Ingrid Rose, about her novel, The Mercy Journals, published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2016. You heard Claudia read an extract from The Mercy Journals and tell of some of what it took to get this complex and intimate work out into the world. My thanks goes to my co-hosts and co-producers, Carol Harmon and Gary Sill, Gary is our tech and music composer for Writers Radio. Thanks also goes to you, our listeners. Thank you. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. 
Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishel Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship. Thank you.